All right, everyone. I think we are live now for episode three of the Neither Here Nor There podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you to all of our listeners out there. We really appreciate you. Um, I'm, of course, Daniel Greer, back home in Charlotte, North Carolina. This is our first recording where we haven't been together. And joining me is... Stephen Kilby. Still in Burgess Hill, unfortunately. You're, uh, <laughs> you're, you're back home. I'm back home now after um, what was a, a really amazing couple of weeks having you over here. It's, it's a really strange feeling uh, with you being back home now. It's kind of empty, especially in my house. But how are you doing, well, brother? Well, I'm doing, doing well. and It was a great two and a half weeks, and you know, and your family knows how thankful I am for you all. And we won't go into that, but it was, we did amazing things. I guess for those of you that follow us on social media, you've probably seen some of the posts and reels and other stupid things we've been up to, but now I'm good back to work today. It's uh, six o'clock here. It's bright and sunny and warm. How's the weather over in Burgess Hill? Uh, horrendous. Absolutely horrible. Today. <laughs> I got caught in a hailstorm. Um, I got caught in heavy rain. It stopped raining briefly, but that was at the point where I was sitting inside and working. So, yeah, it's it's actually pretty much rained non-stop since you left, unfortunately. But I'm sure it's not the same back in the Charlotte, where it's probably like seventy degrees or something stupid. Yeah, they said it. They said it was nasty this weekend, but it looks like I missed that. And then as soon as I left England, the weather turned sour. But no, I'm good. Uh, we, uh, I'm back, you know, back in my routine, worked out today, ordered some groceries, and I'm in the middle of doing laundry, so, you know, you know better than anyone else how hectic it is when you're trying to get back from a trip, because you travel a lot, and mm. for those of you listening, we're recording this pretty far in advance, this, this episode should be coming to you at the end of April, but we're doing so because of our upcoming schedules, especially Stevens with him being out of uh, the country, uh, coming up for work. So, um, but yeah, I guess, you know, before we dive in, um, <clears throat> got a couple things on my mind we could talk about and I haven't talked to you on the phone since I got back, but, you know, gotta say one, one cool thing I noticed when I was flying back on Saturday. Um, and this was actually my short flight of the two. This was just a brief 20 minute flight. Uh, it was about a 11 or so at night, and the plane that I was on for this short flight barely gets above cruising altitude, or to cruising altitude because it's such a small or short flight, but there's something so mystifying about flying that late at night on a clear night, and it was for me. I was sitting at the window seat on the plane, and just looking out you know, over the vast expanse of the earth and seeing the white clouds below you and then just that dark purplish blue black sky with stars and the moon. And then of course, everything being somewhat illuminated by the moonlight. I don't know that image has been in my head since that late night flight the other night. And there's really something special about that to me. Have you ever, ever looked out while you're flying and thought something similar or am I, am I crazy? No, 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 definitely not. I really like, when having like the window seat when you're flying at specific times, like I love it when it's you're flying through the sunrise or you're chasing the sun almost as it sets and you can see, you know, the kind of rays coming over the clouds and stuff like that. No, I totally get that. Um, flying at night is also cool, when, especially when you're flying low and you're descending through a city or something. Um, that could be pretty mesmerizing for sure. It's so peaceful. It's so peaceful and. Um, I figured you you might have thought something similar. Now I wasn't happy about the long travel day and the extra flight I had to do, but just the peace of you know being up and kind of alone and in a dark airplane and looking out over the earth as you're cruising along is always a very relieving feeling, especially after a long trip. You know, I I guess I left your parents' house Saturday at twelve o'clock noon on Greenwich time which would be 7 in the morning Eastern time, and then I didn't get back until 1.30 in the morning Eastern. So it was it was about a good 19, 18, 19 hours of traveling total. It, 
made for a long day. Um, but yeah, that's that's sort of what I've been thinking about that. And also, I will say yesterday for maybe the second time in my life, I ordered Whole Foods delivery through Amazon. And I have whole to say, paycheck. whole paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, but I have to say, and the reason why I bring this up is I've been pleasantly surprised that it really wasn't that much more than anywhere save like Aldi or Trader Joe's. And I got it quickly. And then, of course, the quality is really good because it's it's Whole Foods. And I had a had a like a salmon and couscous meal tonight for dinner. Super healthy after all the horrible horrible for you food that we ate over two and a half weeks. So <laughs> my body's currently in shock, you know? <laughs> yeah, mine too. Mine too. Although I just uh, come away from a bachelor stag weekend thing. And that was, that was not the most healthy weekend of my life. Let me tell you. <laughs> yeah. Give a, give the, give our listeners and give me a PG summary briefly here about, about your weekend. You know, uh, you mentioned, a stag weekend or what we call in America a bachelor weekend. So get into that. Tell us where you went and what you did. Cause it sounded like it was a pretty fun time. Yeah, no, I'll keep it brief, but effectively we went to Bath for a couple of days. Bath's just a fantastic historical city, really just lovely atmosphere, really nice place just to go on holiday in general. Probably not the place that you would go if you're on an enormous drinking <laughs> session, but for the group that we had uh, with some of my close friends, it was it was really nice, and the weather was fantastic. And yeah, so we did a, a few activities. We did some like uh, an escape room, which was quite cool. Um, it was like a time traveling one where half of us were trapped in nineteen forty five in Christmas, and the other half of us were trapped in the present day. And we had to like help each other um, through like two different rooms to like try and link up again and kind of go back into the back to the future, I guess. Um, that was really cool. And yeah, we did some beer pong, shuffleboard, that sort of thing. But it was just the drinking fest, as you know, Daniel, haven't been on some of these. It was, in <laughs> fact, it got so bad that the, uh, the stag himself didn't even make sundown on the first day. It was just completely um, off his rocker <laughs> after like four hours and not even that much beer. It was quite shocking, um, but overall, really fun trip and a really good opportunity to spend some time with some people that I used to, you know, see every day at high school and stuff. And then, as you know, you just get older, don't you? And getting everybody together just becomes harder and harder and harder. So you've got to kind of make the most of these rare opportunities where everybody has to come together for a specific reason. Um, and yeah, it was it was really fun, a really nice place to go as well. So definitely need to to go back to Bath. Yeah. ASAP. I think I went, I think I went to Bath in 2011. The Roman Baths are there for those of you that mm. don't know. Bath's an old Roman city uh, with, that had large public baths 2000 years ago. The remnants of which are still there. And it's a very, but what'd you say? It's a very Georgian city, right? The architecture is mm. very 1700s, right? Mm. Yeah. And it's, it's a city that's kind of kept, retained its character um, and even like newer buildings are kind of kept to the same style. So the whole place kind of, unlike London, where everywhere you look is a different sort of <laughs> period of architecture. And if you look up, it's modern. If you look down, it's kind of ancient. In Bath, it's kind of the same across the board. And it, it's, it makes for quite a picturesque postcard city. It's, it's just really nice. Really, really nice. Um, and it's so yeah, in a, I, it's in a good part of the country too, right? Like out, out kind of like not really west country, but more like what, like Cotswoldy type area. Yeah, I mean it's not really that far from from London on the train. I mean it took us, um, it if you from central London you can get there in under two hours, um, which is amazing, really. Um, so it's very accessible, which helps, and it means it's on a weekend like Easter weekend, it's very busy with lots of tourists kind of going out to sort of capture the first first sort of weekend of good weather of the year so it was it was definitely had a really good vibe and atmosphere that's for sure well good good i missed you the past couple of days but your mom and dad oh. took took good care of me so that <laughs> we your dad and i actually well this is the last thing i'll say and then we'll jump into our topics but 
Um, <clears throat> I had an unexpected change of plans for the second week of my trip to the UK. And so I ended up staying with Stephen and his parents. And because my change of plans was unexpected, um, he already had this bachelor slash stag weekend book. So basically the last couple of days I was just hanging out with Stephen's parents, which for those of you that don't know, I'm very close to them too. And uh, I've actually spent time in the past with, with them uh, without Stephen. And so ended up Thursday night, I think Stephen's dad and I went and we did a live, not well, I guess an interactive war of the world's experience in London. It was, it used virtual reality headsets, live actors, actresses. There was a steampunk bar and restaurant in it. It was amazing. You know, for those of you, I don't know if you've, if anyone out there's ever read the original novel written by H.G. Wells in 1898, or even maybe just seen the more recent, what, 2000, well, I guess not really recent, it was almost 20 years ago, the 2005 Tom Cruise movie, War of the Worlds, it was that, basically, the alien, the Martian invasion, so really awesome, really awesome night with Steven's dad, who ended up having Indian food and running into some fellow Spurs fans that Steven and his dad know. So it ended up being just one of those kind of like spontaneous evenings out. Um, had a good time. So yeah, <laughs> wanted to say that too, but all right, man, topics for today. This is of course, and we probably forgot to even mention it. Uh, neither here nor there, two topics, two friends, two continents. And, we both pick a topic each time, so I guess we'll just jump into mine first if you want to. Um, yeah, yep. Um, so let's talk about accents. Um, and for those of you listening, I guarantee you that either one of us, one of the two of us has a funny accent to you, and maybe both of us have a funny accent to you. Uh, if if Neither of us sound like how you sound, and obviously I think Stephen and I probably have pretty different accents, probably as far as English goes, probably two of the most different accents um, that that are out there. But really, I, I, I was thinking of some things to talk about, Stephen, and I guess my first point I'd like to make, question I'd like to ask you, and then I'll, after you share, I'll share, is when did you first realize that you had an accent, an accent that was different from a lot of other people? Um, I still haven't because I don't have an accent, as you know. <laughs> um, I just talk like a baseline normal English, and everyone else is just a freak of nature, as far as I'm concerned. And um, that's a very British response <laughs> to my question. <laughs> uh, uh, it's difficult. I mean, probably the first time I went to America because I don't think you ever really f feel conscious of your accent when you're in say like parts of continental Europe where people talk different languages because you either talk the language or you don't and so you don't become self-conscious of how you sound whereas when I'm in America or when I'm in like when I've been to Australia and you're mixing in with people who are speaking um, English but very differently with completely different slang and terminology that you're unfamiliar with I suppose it's different in England and Scotland and Wales, where you've got loads of different accents, but because you kind of grown up knowing about them, you don't really think about it. But I definitely remember being in America for the first time in 2012 and sort of talking to people and almost stuttering my words while I'm talking because I'm just thinking, God, I sound so different and sound probably sound, you know, like I stick up like a sore thumb. Um, so I would probably say 2012 when I was in. Minnesota the first time I went to America and just being constantly quizzed about where I'm from and <laughs> well, what accent is that and that sort of thing that's probably the first time I was ever really conscious of it how about you was it mm. was it the reverse when you came over here I guess but honestly I have such a strong accent it was probably even when I was at before before I studied abroad in London when I went to ETSU East Tennessee State and met people from elsewhere in the country. I mean, there have been cases in, on other trips where people had pointed out my accent, but really I remember thinking, hmm, you know, I sound different than other people from the South or other people from from Tennessee or Virginia or wherever. Uh, so, uh, you know, probably that point in my life was the latest, but definitely if, if I wanted to go before that, I would say teenage years. And I do, I have a thick accent. It's probably gotten 
less thick in the near decade that I've lived away from the Tri-Cities of Virginia and Tennessee. Uh, for those of you that don't know, I would probably label my accent as, um, I guess, a high Appalachian twang. It's not really a southern drawl. It's more of a higher-pitched twang. That's that Appalachian Highland accent. So I'll tell you, tell you something. Stephen speaks the Queen's English. I was always told that people in Appalachia spoke the court jester's English because we were <laughs> from the lower orders of society back when our ancestors came to the to America from Great Britain. So there you go. But of course, Stephen, you may argue and say, well, actually, it's not even the Queen's English now, is it? It's the King's English. <laughs> mm, yeah, well, I mean, I remember learning at school about regional accents and dialects um, in English class and... I believe the technical term for my accent is estuary English, which is just the general um, kind of description for people who live in and around the Ten- Thames estuary. And so I speak with almost received pronunciation, I guess. Um, and it's kind of the, the, the voices that you hear most commonly on broadcasts and I guess in movies and Stuff like that, where where things are based in London and in the UK, um, but yeah, I guess the the King's English is kind of a weird thing <laughs> to say, but I guess it kind of makes sense now. Yeah, <laughs> and, and you could even say, uh, you know, you're definitely that, and also I guess Cockney. You know, I mean, there is a little bit of the Cockney. I don't know if you'd call it a twang, but definitely like the Cockney. Um, I can hear the Cockney accent when you speak. Mm. Ever so slightly, and you don't use yeah, the, the rhyming slang. It, it does change. It does change depending on who I'm with, because <laughs> I, I'm sure you feel the same. Depending on who you're mixing with, your accent kind of changes. I'm a bit of like a social chameleon in that sense, where I feel like if I'm in America for a couple of weeks, I'll start to almost use some Americanisms and have a slight sort of American twang to certain things that I say and the way that I say things. But certainly in, in the UK, if I'm, you know, down the pub with people before a football match or whatever, and I'm with, you know, I guess the more sort of blue collar style of uh, sort of <clears throat> pub with lots of, you know, hardworking builders in football shirts, you kind of slip into the sort of, oh, right, mate, how you doing? You're right, yeah. Well, that sort of <laughs> <laughs> very slangy um, way of talking. Whereas if I'm, at work or interviewing somebody it's very clear and I try to be more formal and then especially if I'm talking to people who aren't you know don't speak English very well so I kind of have to feel like I adapt as I go along do you do that when you're abroad talking to people who don't necessarily speak English as their first language or if you're talking to people with kind of a different on the different sort of working class middle class upper class spectrum well, I don't, I'd like to say I do, but I probably don't. I just don't, I think my accent's pretty much my default. Mm. <laughs> and, and you can't say, I've changed. never noticed it. I've never noticed it. Now, terminology, I mean, I'll, I'll use, like when I'm over in the UK, I'll say toilet instead of bathroom, or I'll say cheers instead of thank you, or I'll, you know, like I do tweet that because I understand enough of the, the, of, of that aspect of the, I guess of the dialogue to change. Uh, but then again, like, you know, you and I both know each other's slang terms so well that we don't, like, I'll say gas, let's go get gas for the car, and you know that I mean petrol, and vice versa, so that that helps, so I guess we're kind of each other's own worst enemies in that we know so much about each other and our countries and languages, or dialects, that we don't have to really change much when it's me and you. Mm. Um, oh, I'd agree. So I'd agree. I, I think of always a few instances... Uh, with my accent and how it's how it's always you know turned ahead I guess you could say I remember when I was in London in 2014 maybe even been before I met you um, I was at a restaurant I think it was probably Nando's in the Shepherd's Bush Westfield Mall and I was ordering my food and the the girl at the counter who was ringing up my food heard me speak and I'm sure nine years ago I had a much thicker accent than I do now and sure that's hard to believe but it's probably true but she was so amazed at my accent that she called her manager over to the till 
um, so he could hear me speak. And he, they were really busy at this Nando's or restaurant or wherever I was at, and really busy. And the, the manager sort of rolled his eyes and told her to get back to work or something. But she was so amazed <laughs> <laughs> my accent that she stopped what she was doing. And, you know, I, I came to realize that a lot of Americans, you know, only ever hear an English accent on a movie or a TV show like Downton Abbey or Titanic or something. But there's a lot of British people that have never heard a real life Southern accent outside mm-hmm. of American film or TV. And that's, you know, it works reversely. So it was always interesting to be such a such, I guess, a novelty for the first time in my life. And even on this past trip, it's, it happened, you know, where I would, I was at the store the other day in London and the younger girl that was checking me out said, where are you from? And, you know, told her and everything. And I never really know where to say that I'm from anymore because I was born in Virginia on the Tennessee line, but I really haven't lived there in a decade. And then now I live in North Carolina. So I just sort of say something different every time I guess, but Mm. Um, and I know that when you come over to visit, you're always such a novelty to people in the Tri-Cities or Charlotte or wherever you've come to visit Lynchburg when I've, um, when you come to visit me, but does do any instances like that stick out to you from, from like coming over to visit me? Well, loads, because I suppose a lot of places I've been to, if you've been places that aren't that touristy, so there will be <laughs> a lot of people, especially people who aren't very well traveled, who have never heard an accent outside of an American accent almost. And it you do find the, the sort of the further you get out of a major city, the more novelty you become. <laughs> Effectively, I did, yeah, I mean, there's countless times where I've been <laughs> you know, asked to... Uh, the, the most awkward thing is when people ask you to talk because then you kind of get... It gets awkward and you don't really know what to say and then you kind of feel like a circus <laughs> act. Like I've, I've, I've on more than one occasion been asked to record my voice on somebody else's phone um, so that they can, like, show it to their friends or something because they can't believe it. But it's so, it's so strange in this day and age when the world's so small to, to kind of be treated like that. It's very odd. But I guess the other way around, we're kind of used to hearing, especially growing up in, in London, you're so used to hearing people with radically different accents because London's such a sort of transient city full of people all over the world and especially around Europe that you don't really take notice if somebody walks in with like a you know Spanish accent talking English or you know an Italian person or something like that it doesn't I've I've never gone oh god what a fantastic accent please please talk tell me more because it's not you know it's it's just so common whereas I guess if you're in Damascus um, <laughs> Damascus, for, you know, now now yeah, clarify Damascus, Virginia, yeah, not Damascus, Damascus Syria. <laughs> the proper, the proper Damascus, the real one. Um, well, Virgi- the, <laughs> the one that's still intact, I guess. You could say. Well, is it? Is it still intact? Um, <laughs> if you're in the general store in Damascus, Virginia, you're probably coming across people who have never been out of the South re- pretty regularly. I would say, in my experience. Yeah, yeah, or North or North America, you know. Mm. Now, don't forget, a lot of Americans go to like the Caribbean or go on a yeah. cruise. To, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's it's fascinating. What I find is interesting is I noticed really like instantly when you're watching like an American TV show where like there's ninety percent of the people on the show are American, and there's one English character. And I always feel the English character in an American show always sounds so bad. It's like chalk, you know, scratching a chalkboard. (laughs) And I I always think, God, is that really what I sound like when I'm in a, you know, in amongst a gang of American friends or something? Is this really how I sound? It sounds so stupid. But then, yeah, when you're watching an English show where everybody's English and there's one American, it doesn't, I don't ever think like that. It's just so strange. No, yeah. well, you, you definitely sound sophisticated and I sound stupid, <laughs> but that's, that's another thing we can Which talk is, about. The, the irony <laughs> of that is that is that you're far more sophisticated than me and I'm <laughs> stupid. <laughs> and then, but that's the thing is, you know, that 
ingrained, especially in American society, is that they hear a southern accent and they think that you're a dumb hillbilly. And that goes back to over 100 years ago when Northeastern media people in American newspaper and journal writers created this hillbilly depiction of people from Appalachia, uh, where I'm from, that they're dumb and backwards and they sound stupid and they don't have teeth and all that. And so there's been this negative connotation for generations that the accent means you're stupid. And, you know, like it is unfortunate and it's frustrating at times, but also I use it to my advantage because I guess, you know, people start hearing me actually talking like, okay, wait, maybe this guy actually is more intelligent than we initially thought. So, um, and you know, like my friends from New York were shocked to hear me talk the first time they ever met me. And I, I work now for an international company, people from all over the United States and all over the world, but people, my, my coworkers, colleagues and other States are surprised, I guess, at my accent to hear, hear how I sound. Um, I just thought of something really funny, Stephen. Do you remember what happened to us in the Smoky Mountain National Park back in October about, <laughs> about a little scenario we had with a older lady that when we stopped? No. Okay. Well, I'll tell this story, but please interject because um, I know you'll remember this. So for those of you that don't know, the Great Smoky Mountain National Park is the most visited national park in America. And Stephen and his girlfriend, Carolyn, and I, uh, on their visit to America last year in October, visited the park. And it's beautiful, especially in the fall. It's an amazing place. But unfortunately, it's always very crowded. And there's one road in, and basically that road's a big loop through this place called Cage Cove. And you're pretty much on this road, and you're stuck bumper to bumper for hours until you loop through Cade's Cove. And so at one point we stop and it was like what an old church or a cabin or something. We stopped to take pictures. And as we're stopped and uh, doing our thing, the cars, this like snake line of cars and people just keep on coming by. And these two cars come through and there's all these young people younger than us, probably 20, you know, early twenties, hanging out of the car and hanging out of the sunroof and taking pictures. And, you know, as you'd say, we're on from hooping and hollering and just having a good time. And they were all what appeared to me to be probably Indians or some sort of South Asian descended people. Well, next to me and Steven was this older lady. She had Georgia tags on her truck, um, obviously from the South. And she said something looking at me and Steven having no idea that Stephen was not American, uh, and said, oh, there's another bunch of them people coming over. I swear they're all just running across our southern border. <laughs> and went on and on and on. Do you remember that now? Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> and I just kind of tried to diffuse the situation. I was like, uh, ma'am, nice truck uh you, you know whatever and then steven is sitting there with like a deer in the headlights look on his face like i hope this woman doesn't realize i'm not american myself <laughs> and yeah, one of those I mean, foreigners as well yeah it, and the, the, the poor woman thought i guess that these people were from mexico or latin america central america or somewhere and they weren't even i mean and that's just the saddest thing is that i'm sure that every single person in those cars was a legal immigrant if not a naturally born american citizen and number one they were from what looked to me to be probably the other side of the globe so <laughs> i mean if you're gonna say something prejudice at least try to get your geography right <laughs> yeah for most things don't go hand in hand do they that's no, <laughs> not not particularly not particularly but and you know it, it wasn't funny in the sense that it was not a good situation, but it was funny. Just, I remember your face, Stephen, and how just like your eyes were kind of big, like I better not mm. say anything, which <laughs> I don't know how that would have gone. But anyways, that, that was really funny um, as well. So <clears throat> what Before else? Before we change we... topics, I want to ask you about accents that you find hard to understand. <laughs> obviously we spent some time in, Liverpool, and even I have no chance with 
um, people who speak the, the, the sort of Scouse accent quite a lot of the time. In America, are there parts of America that you struggle to understand what, what they're saying? In my mind, you know, there's obviously America with the accents from people in the South and the, the West and the Northeast and the, the Midwest. But everyone is pretty easy to understand, whereas it's amazing to me that there are parts of, of England and the UK where people's accents are so radically different, maybe only two or three hours away from where you are at any given point, that sometimes it can take you almost a day to truly tune in and understand what people are saying. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, there's a wide variance in accents across America. Um, you know, you have the southern accents, which we've talked about. Um, you have the Midwest accents, and then you'll have Northeast, specifically like Boston, or even, you know, I could even pick up New York accents, Brooklyn accents, those sorts of things. I don't think any of those are particularly hard to understand. I mean, there is sort of that generic American, North American, including Canadian accent that's very straightforward. It's like a news broadcaster accent. Um, Hardest accents for me to understand, definitely Liverpudlian, uh, people from Liverpool, Scouse accents. And then <laughs> Welsh. Holy moly, I have never heard an accent as thick as Welsh. Uh, remember last year when we met that Welsh guy after the Country to Country concert in London, and he talked to us for over a minute, and after he walked away, I said, Stephen, what did that guy say, and where was he from? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely not easy if you're not used to it. Same with Scots as well. I think you had struggled, struggled a little bit with a couple of Scottish people that we met when you were over here. Yeah, it's, I was uh, just it's, thinking it's about amazing, them too. It? It's amazing. The only American accent that I struggle with is, I think it's is it like people from Pennsylvania because they have really radically different slang terms and they pronounce they, words very different. So they'll, they'll, they'll not only have a different sort of tone to their voice, but the you know, the, the pronunciation of quite a lot of words is almost shortened and quite abrupt. And I can I found that a couple of times when I've met people from, like, Pittsburgh or, you know, the surrounding areas of that. I found them to be quite, sometimes quite difficult to truly get a full understanding of. Yeah, maybe so. Um, I don't really know. Like, I've never struggled with Pennsylvania that much. I'm trying to think of other English accents around the wor world, and English accents is in people who speak English, not people from England. What do you think about like South African accents? Because those are always weird me out. It's just such as they sound, I guess, Dutch, right? Like, but a little bit, yeah. I mean, I don't struggle with um, with understand with like, comprehension, um, I, not as much as say you know parts of Ireland can be quite challenging at times. Um, but like Australians, South Africans and Americans and Canadians in general, I find across the board pretty easy to understand, I would say. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, and then, of course, I'll say one more thing and then that'll be it for me on this one, unless you have anything else to add so we can move on. But um, I've had Europeans, specifically I remember an instance once where I believe they were Danes thought that I was Irish because <laughs> they heard my accent. And, you know, I guess to people who aren't native English speakers, it's harder to pick up. Like, there's no way that you or I could particularly figure out if somebody's from Saxony in Germany or if they're from uh, Bavaria, right? Like, we couldn't pick up on those accents, or at least I couldn't. So I don't necessarily blame them for that, but I did have a chuckle and still think about that, you know, in these rare instances where uh, people from non-English speaking countries have thought that I'm like Irish or some other, mm. some other country. So that, that interests me too. Mm. Same thing. I've been called Irish and Australian multiple times <laughs> in America, which is very strange. Because it's, it's like, oh, you've, you've clearly never heard anybody from Ireland before then. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, maybe the lucky, lucky charms leprechaun. Um <laughs> Okay, gosh, man, time really gets away from us. It's we're already thirty-five minutes well, think, in almost think, in this thing. I think my topic probably won't take quite as long. I think it'll be pretty quick. My topic is um, 
each of us picking a specific day in history that if we could choose, we would go back in time and experience. So can, the, the rules are it could be anything, anywhere. You've got one chance to see something on one specific day in history. What are you picking? So I'll, mm. if you, do you want to start? Have you, have you thought about this? No, go ahead and start. Um, yeah, so, so mine, mine is, um, I did think about, you know, I've gone through all of it. I've gone through, oh, is there a specific day in like the Roman Empire I'd love to see? Or would I like to be there at Appomattox Courthouse for the end of the American Civil War? Or, you know, do you, do you want to go back and see what actually happened when supposedly the Big Bang happened or think, things like that? But the one for me that... Um, I would just love to to be able to witness was is VE Day, so obviously nineteen forty five, end of the war, victory in Europe Day. I think uh, genuinely probably one of the most incredible days in history. I would imagine that being in central London or in Paris, places like that, VE Day must have been just the most jubilant experience of anybody's lives who lived through that period. I can't, you can't imagine the feeling after, you know, I mean, we had the tiniest representation of it, of COVID, I guess, where you had a couple of years where things were so horrible and so, you know, uncertain and miserable throughout the world. And everyone was kind of going through the same thing at the same time. It was kind of this world experience, but to go through world war two, where, you know, effectively the fate of most of the the human race was kind of at stake. That experience of it being over must have been just incredible, completely overwhelming. That's why that's that's my thought is I don't know, standing in central London on that day when they officially kind of declared that the war had ended, that must have been unbelievable. And I'd love to have sort of see what, what it was like, what the people were doing, what the celebrations were like. You know what? What were the pubs and restaurants like at that time? With people just like I'd imagine partying through the night. You know, seeing people probably the happiest they'd ever been in their lives, and also probably a bit sorrowful at times. I would imagine because you kind of would reflect on the sheer loss of it all. But I'd imagine that overwhelming experience would be something that that you could never replicate, and something that we'll probably never experience. Let's hope not. Let's hope not. You know, and I actually thought about that too as, as choosing my date in history, and I won't, but I will say I don't think that we will ever fully understand the magnitude of that day. World War II was one thing in itself. It was the most devastating war in history, but you got to think that the people that were alive that were even 20 or 30 years old at our time had lived through the Great Depression as well, and then in many cases – had lived through the First World War. So these people had literally, in the span of just 20-some years, had been through absolute hell. Um, hell on Earth. And I think just the mix of emotions, the jubilation, the sorrow for those that had been lost, and just the feeling must have just been incredible. Um, you know, and I'm getting, I'm getting goosebumps just sitting here talking about it because... Sadly, most of those people from 1945 that remember that day are, are no longer with us. And <clears throat> you mentioned VE Day, which was in May of 1945. I actually, and I don't know if you know this, but I actually had the privilege of meeting a man who was in the United States Navy. I think he was a signalman on the U USS Missouri. And you know, you know the significance of the USS Missouri. They called it the Mighty Mo or the Big Mo, that was the nickname of the battleship. You know you know what mm. the story is with that ship, Stephen? Is that is that a ship that um, almost sunk or something like that? I don't know about that, but it the Missouri was the ship in August of 1945 where the Japanese surrendered to the Allies. And, and it was called DJ Day, Victory in Japan, ended the war officially. So the Missouri was the surrender ship, um, and this this gentleman that I met, um, he was on that ship as a naval, uh, not an officer, but a naval <clears throat> a member of the United States Navy, and actually witnessed 
the surrender and saw MacArthur and then saw the Japanese uh, come and sign the documents. And of course, all around them were, you know, United States servicemen and that sort of thing. And so I actually did meet somebody that saw with his own eyes the end of World War II, which, you know, people like me and you, that's just fascinating. So that must, uh, that's, that's genuinely unbelievable, isn't it? It's, it is. I mean, you know, he was just, he, he, this was a long time ago. I don't even know if the gentleman's still around. Um, but he was just a normal person like you and I. And he, he said, you know, I used to not even talk about this stuff, but as I'm getting older now, I think I should. And he said, I was there. I was there when it happened and told me and told, told me what I just told you all, you know, and it's, it's sad, you know, that we're really the last generation that will know people that remember that war in a way. And I think there's going to be a lot that's lost once the last of the World War II veterans are gone from us. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's an excellent, excellent um, date to choose. And like I said, almost one that I chose for myself. So I appreciate you mm. saying that. So what did you go for? Well, I've had a hard time, and I've probably overanalyzed a lot of this. Um, you know, you can't really say the fall of the Roman Empire because that's debatable. Did when did the Roman Empire fall exactly? Depends on who you ask. And it didn't really fall with a bang; it was more so a whimper. I thought about the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus, or maybe the Crucifixion, but that's kind of too religious and not necessarily historical. And I think we kind of made a pledge to not really talk politics and religion on this podcast. So I decided not to choose that one. Um, I believe what I would like to see, just being a history buff and then someone who's very fascinated in kind of the late Victorian uh, Edwardian era, which for those of you that don't know, that would be the late 18, early 1900s. I think what I would like to see would be, which actually, Stephen, this kind of goes in conjunction with yours, is you wanted to see the end of World War II. I would like to see the beginning of World War I, um, which World War One's not as studied anymore, at least in America, but it's a fascinating war. And mm. many, of course, say that World War One and World War II were the same war with a brief intermission, and there's a lot of truth in that. But really... To see how it went down in the summer of 1914, or even if you want to pinpoint an exact date, August 1914, like what was it like to be Edward Gray, who I believe was the British foreign minister? Um, what was it like to be Kaiser Wilhelm in Germany? What was it like to be Tsar Nicholas of Russia? What was it like to be Gavrilo Princip rotting in an Austrian prison on those opening days as Germany – response to Britain's ultimatum went unanswered. Britain basically gave Germany an ultimatum by ex by midnight on August 10th or something, August 3rd. I can't remember the exact date. Britain said, you know, to the German Empire, if you don't withdraw your troops, I believe, from France or, or was it Belgium at that point? <clears throat> Didn't study this up before getting on here, but basically they gave them an ultimatum saying, if you don't back down by midnight tonight, we're going to say to war and then just to be, I think in that situation to be able to see the last minutes, you know, and hearing the bell toll, like even just say you're in Westminster in London, you're hearing like big Ben as it strikes midnight and you hear the bong, bong, bong. And then all of a sudden you realize being a person in power and government that you're in a state of war. And then also they didn't know it at the time. They thought it was going to be a quick war, but we know what they didn't know. And that was that the world was absolutely upended and nearly destroyed from that moment forward. You had in 1914, you had a hundred years of peace relatively in Europe outside the Crimea and what's now the Ukraine in the 1850s. From Napoleon's surrender at Waterloo in 1815 to August 1914, you had literally 100 years of, of relative peace and prosperity in Europe. And then just to have all that upended in one fell stroke in the summer over a very convoluted and confusing reason. A, the, the heir to a dying empire, Austria-Hungary, was killed 
by a Serb- Serbian anarchist in Sarajevo. And somehow that led to a, the largest catastrophe in the world up to that point, only to be replaced by World War II. And then, of course, World War II, World War One, led to the rise of Nazism and fascism uh, in, in Germany and Italy. It galvanized Japan into their own militarism. And then, of course, it led to the rise of communism in the Soviet Union. Before that, you had empires, you had rapid advances in technology. The world, believe it or not, but I once read the world was actually more connected, at least from like a financial perspective and a trade perspective because of the empires in Europe and Asia, or sorry, in Africa and Asia and the European empires. Uh, it was more connected then than it is now, or, or very close, you know, maybe recently it's now more connected because obviously everything's digital. But, you know, back then, I mean, the British Empire, like literally the sun never set on it, and probably the same for the French Empire as well, and the Russian Empire too almost. Um, the world was very connected, and uh, yeah, I don't know. That's a very, I guess, like mm, so, I've kind of been on so you, so so you want so, so there's a short answer to the question, is you want to be in London as the clock strikes midnight, for the first day of World War One, rather than being there for Archduke Franz Ferdinand's assassination. Yeah, I well, I guess if it's fair to say, I would like to be in many places at once because obviously the Archduke was killed a couple <laughs> weeks before. Um, but I would like to have been, let's say, like maybe London, Paris, and Berlin in those last hours before everything kicked off and before literally all hell broke loose. So if you, if you can give me give me that, but uh, you know if you need one place, I'll bend the rules for you. Yeah, <laughs> but if you need one place, I'd say London, just because you can read so distinctly about Edward Gray and the Foreign Ministry, and then of course I guess the Prime Minister at the time was Asquith, Lloyd George, and just their reactions and just the fear that set in in their own minds. I just you know I mean think about. Think about that. And they, they knew what was about to happen. They had some idea, I guess, but the average person mm. had no idea what was going to happen. Mm. No, that's a really good choice as well. Really good choice. It's, it's interesting that we've both ended up in the 20th century, but I guess it's because, for me, it's it's the, you know, the I guess the 19th and 20th centuries, to me, are the most fascinating because they're close enough that, you know, you can relate to them, or certainly, like, you know, the early the first half of because we were around at the very end of the the 20th century but the first half of the 20th century and sort of the whole 19th century for me are just they're so relatable that i just find that really interesting because so much has happened in such a short space of time um and we have obviously incredible documentation of you know that sort of 200 year period that for me of when i look back at all the sort of topics we studied in history at school and stuff like that. The um, the more modern history is the stuff that's always really captivated me. Definitely. Me too. And I I try to get lost in ancient history and Roman. You know, I've spent a lot of spent a lot of time this past trip to England looking at Roman ruins, and it's hard because it was so long ago, and it's literally ruins. There's no pictures of it, you know, and we don't really know how Roman Latin sounded. And we don't really even know, I don't think how it was pronounced, but, you know, we, you can literally go on the Internet and look up thousands of pictures from World War One, well over 100 years ago now. You can hear recordings of people from that time speak, and it just makes it so hauntingly real um, mm. and chilling. But, and, you know, you That's and I like it. Yeah. We've, we've traveled, we've seen a lot of World War One stuff. I mean, we've been to the Somme, um, we've been to... Um, where else have we been? I mean, we've been we've all over Normandy Belgium. Beaches, haven't we? So we've done World War Two. Some of the some of the sort of key battlegrounds for that as well. Bastogne, Battle of the Bulge. At the end of World War Two, we did that in Belgium, and it's just it's just so different. And I mean, even like I don't think I ever met a World War One veteran that I know of. They're all sadly gone now. But even the last World War One veteran just passed away just over a decade ago. So I mean, you think about that. That's crazy to mm. think people that were in their prime 1914 to 1918 lived until just when you were I were in high school um mm. it makes it just seem so much more real 
to me. Um, so I guess I think we could probably talk about this a lot longer. I mean, we could probably even do a history podcast in itself, and I'm sure <laughs> in later episodes we'll circle back to these sorts of things and reference them oh, and definitely. hopefully – Hopefully, never repeat themselves. You know, we'll, we'll think of two good topics for our audience next time, and I guarantee you, one of them will either relate to history or somehow we will relate it to history because that's just <laughs> who we are. Um, so we can we can do our top three, bottom three, and then I guess say goodbye. We're at fifty minutes now, so we're we're mm. pushing up against it for the for the time limit we set. So. Um, what did we yeah. what did we say you want to start us so off with got, this? So this is a, a this is a listener submitted um <laughs> amazingly, believe it or not, <laughs> even though as it stands only one episode exists um and is published. This is from Brian who asks what are our top three beers and our bottom three movies. So do you want to go ahead and, and start? Yeah, and we're doing a rapid fire, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah, not not too much description, I guess. Okay, well, I won't go into too much description, but bear with me because I do have to think a little bit. So I would say probably top three beers would be definitely Cronenberg, sixteen sixty four. That's the that's the premier beer of France. It's hard to get in America. Great beer, love Cronenberg. Also, really love Carling, another hard beer. That's an English beer, hard to get in America, and then. I'm going to be simple. I really don't like craft beer much anymore. It's just, I don't know. It's not great. And I'm going to say you can't go wrong with a good cold Bud Light on a hot summer day. Um, So that would be my top three beers. All right, let's hear yours. My top beer is uh, Beavertown Neck Oil, which is, you know, something that's pretty close to home because it's like the sort of signature beer of Tottenham Hotspur's stadium. It's something that I drink relatively regularly when I'm at games and it just the the taste of of that just sort of no matter where I am takes me back to, you know, spending time with friends and family. So I love I love that beer. Second for me is uh Miller Light for similar reason in the sense that the taste of Miller Light, Miller Light was the first ever beer I really had. And so I had that in America. Um, at the Stadium View bar opposite Lambeau Field when I technically wasn't old enough to drink in America, but in Wisconsin, if you get adults' permission, you're allowed to have a beer. So it's kind of the first novelty beer I ever had um, in America, and that just always makes me think of going to Packers games and going to baseball games in Wisconsin and Minnesota. So Miller Lite is number two for me. And third... Uh, it's probably Desperados, which is a really bizarre pick, and I know a lot of people hate it because it's like tequila flavored. But again, I just I really like Desperados. I love the taste of it, and I love the fact that it doesn't take a lot for you to get a good a good buzz from. So I, that's my top three. And then I guess Desperados, as far as I know, you don't really see them much in America. At least I don't. I mean, I don't actively go looking for them, but. Uh, Desperado's big beer in the UK and actually I didn't have any last time I was over there so missed out on that opportunity once you have to come back (laughs) darn it I'll have to come back Um, all right well so that's our beers and then let's go through our top or our bottom excuse me movies and I'm really going to struggle with this so Stephen why don't you go ahead and start us off Ooh, yeah, again, it's one of those where you think, how many movies have I sat down and watched and absolutely hated? I mean, I've been disappointed with plenty of movies. Um, I'll throw out... Um, oh, it's difficult, isn't it? Um, I mean, honestly, probably the worst one I've ever seen in the cinema is the Pokemon... Was it Pokemon 2000? What? It's a great movie. Unwatchable. <laughs> <bad>. <laughs> just unwatchable. Um, no, you know that. Even even though I was into Pokemon at the time, yeah, no, I can't believe I ever, you know, forced my parents to pay money to go and watch. <laughs> you thought it was that films. bad as a kid? Uh, I don't, I'm pretty sure I didn't really like it that much as a kid either. Um, 
the other movie that stands out in my mind was a movie that I saw with my godfather, um, Matt, who's sadly no longer with us. It was um, a samurai movie called Hero, and that was just trash. Like, absolute steaming, steaming hot, cold, hard trash. <laughs> um, yeah, um, yeah, just generally awful. Um, and then I'm pretty sure there's loads of really bad horror films I've seen oh, over yeah. the years. So, I, I, do you know what I really don't like? I really don't like the Evil Dead movies. So I'm going to put Evil Dead 1 as my as number three on my list because they're just so stupid. But not in a good way, just in a generally stupid way. Really don't like the Evil Dead films. Don't bother if you've not seen them. You know, some people love them. They're a bit of a cult classic, but not for me. Not for me. I don't think... I don't think I've seen them, yeah, um, don't but I'll, I'll, uh, your word's gold in my book, so I won't bother. Um, okay, while Stephen was talking, I have compiled somewhat of a list, and you're going to hate me for the first one, but the new Star Wars trilogy, the Disney trilogy, specifically the second one, whatever that one's called. What's it called, Stephen? The, 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 um, it's not the Rise of Skywalker, it's the, um, or is it? Um, it's the one... It's the one where uh, Luke Skywalker comes back. You know what I'm talking about? The Ryan Johnson directed movie. Um, absolutely hate that movie uh, and hate the trilogy. Rogue One, Mandalorian, that stuff's good, but the new Star Wars trilogy overall is so bad. What, what's it called? Because there's The Force Awakens, and then is it the, the third one's The Rise of Skywalker, but what's the second one called? Um, do you know off the top of your head? Um, the second one. Uh, oh, good question. Um, the Last Jedi. The Last, Last Jedi. Jedi. That's um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just don't like it. I mean, it. You know, it ruined one of my favorite IPs for me, it, and it turned Luke Skywalker into an absolute just loser in my opinion, <laughs> which I hated because he was my hero growing up. Um, but yeah, that's number one. Number two would probably be. The the new the Hobbit trilogy. I love Lord of the Rings. Um, love uh, the Hobbit. Love Tolkien. He's probably my favorite author. I'm a huge fan. I have a huge collection of Tolkien books, um, even outside of Lord of the Rings. But the the Hobbit movie specifically, I think the second one was really bad. The first one was oh, was decent, and then the, maybe the you last like one the was first one because I saw it with you bizarrely in America. And you like yeah. the first one. I like the first one as well. And, and the first one followed the book relatively well, but it just seemed like after that it just was stretched so thin and just not good, and they just tried to make it into a trilogy. They tried to make a 300-page children's book into a trilogy, and it just didn't work for me. And then, oh, two minutes left, so let's do this real quick. Last one, um, A Walk in the Woods, um, which had it's Robert Redford. Yeah, and it had Robert Redford of all time. I know, I know. Like you and I both cherish the book. We both love Bill Bryson. Uh, if you guys haven't read any of Bill Bryson's books on travel, check them out. Walking the Woods is about him and a buddy hiking the Appalachian Trail back in the nineties. The movie's terrible. It's with Robert Redford, and then uh, who's the dude from The Big Lebowski? What's his name? Um, Steve Buscemi. No, the Jeff dude. Bridges. The, Jeff Bridges, yeah, I think it's Jeff Bridges and Robert Redford, so you would think it would have been great, but it just it just wasn't. It was oh. such a disappointment because the book was so, you know, so good, and I probably read the book three times, and I know you you absolutely love it. You said it's your favorite book um, as well. So those are my three. Uh, feel free to email us uh, feedback, or if you want us to do a top three, bottom three of your choosing, send it in. Uh, thank you. Yeah, All for listening. I'll go neither ahead, here nor, neither here nor there pod at gmail.com. Yep, neither here <laughs> nor there pod at gmail.com if you didn't understand his accent. <laughs> um, but yeah, thanks again for listening. These hours go by really fast. It's It's been a blast. I mean, we're just, we're doing this for fun, guys. We like it. It's fun to do. We appreciate you. Subscribe to us, share it, rate it, do whatever you need to do to get the word out there. But it, once again, I'm Daniel Greer. I'm Stephen Kilby. 
And this is Neither Here Nor There podcast, and uh, we will talk to you guys next time. Have a good one, Stephen. Good to talk to you, man. Good to speak to you, brother. See ya.